Well, good evening. They needed speakers, and they flew me in from Colorado on Monday. That's not really true. We arrived on Monday, and uh, Pastor Scott asked me to uh, think about filling in on Wednesday. So it's going to be kind of a quick adjustment. If I, if I fall asleep during this, you'll understand, but I won't, Lord willing. Um, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at this passage from about verse 21 down to verse 25. It is good to be with you, and we are back now for three weeks, and Lord willing, we'll be back again in the winter for, let's see, about three months. And um, it's much better to leave Colorado in the winter and come here than it is to come here in the summer. Have you figured that out? If you've ever lived in Colorado, you would understand what I'm saying. But it is good to be back with you. And this is a passage tonight that we're going to consider that the Lord has impressed upon my heart in recent days. And I hope that he will bless you as we look at these words. Let's read it first of all, beginning with verse 21 down to the end of the chapter in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's just bow for a moment of prayer. Father, I would ask that you would take these words and write them upon our hearts, that you would give us clear understanding and challenge us tonight as believers with a truth that is here. Father, may we come away knowing more about your work as our great high priest in offering yourself, offering your son as the sacrifice for our sins. All of them, every one of them. And then also through his death, Father, giving us life, healing us spiritually so that we might live to righteousness and die to sin. May these truths tonight change us, empower us, motivate us to live for Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I have found over the years, if I am in conversation with a Christian, and if I ask them a question like this, what is it that Christ has done for you by his death on the cross? 
normally what I hear, and it's a good answer, it is a right answer, it's a positive answer, is he has cleansed me from all my sin and forgiven me. That's a wonderful answer, and that is true. And normally, that's where it stops. But there's something else that this passage teaches us clearly that he also did at the cross. Something that we needed that he also accomplished for us. And that is that he gave us spiritual healing. He gave us spiritual life. All because of his death and resurrection on the cross. And I want you to see that as we go through this tonight. But primarily we're going to look at Jesus' work as our high priest. If you're familiar with the Old Testament offices, there are three. There's the office of prophet, priest, and king. All three are there. The interesting thing in the Old Testament, they were all important, but not one man ever held all three. Some have suggested that Samuel had two of them, that he was both a prophet and he was a priest. He certainly seemed to do priestly duties, so that seems logical, but nobody ever had all three. All three of the offices, however, were important. I don't remember this before, um, but I'm going to have to get weightier pages. Did you notice how this Bible keeps flipping? So if I'm reading the wrong passage, bear with me, I'll get back here. All three of these offices, extremely important. The office of the prophet was to receive word from God and then on behalf of God communicate that to men. Men needed to know how to live. They needed to know how to walk with God. So the role of the prophet was extremely important. How to avoid sin. How to live a godly life. Extremely important. Then there was the office of the priest. The priest was a mediator on behalf of men before God. He would offer sacrifice for sins. He would go before God on behalf of men so that they might be forgiven and cleansed. And then the office of king. The king came along. That office was actually planned by God. If you look back in the Pentateuch, even before it occurs in the book of Samuel. God says, I am going to provide a king for them. A king was to lead. A king was to provide protection from enemies. A king was to provide sustenance for his people. He was to care for them. All three offices were important. But in the New Testament, we find there is one person, the person of Jesus Christ, who fills them all. He is prophet he is priest, then he is king. He speaks the words of God. He is the priest who offers sacrifice for sins himself. And he also is the king and the coming king. And he will reign forever and ever on the throne in the new heavens and new earth. And we will be with him. Tonight, though, we're going to concentrate on office number two. 
in this passage. It's all about the priestly work of Jesus Christ. That work that he did on the cross. That work that he did at Calvary when he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. We're going to look at three things as we go through this passage. We'll unpack it this way. Number one, what kind of a priest was he and what what made him different than all the other priests that went before him? That's number one. Number two, what did his priestly work achieve in reference to both God and man? What did he accomplish in his priestly role? And finally, we'll look at this one. What was the purpose of his priestly work with regards to us? What was the purpose of his priestly work with regards to us? It's all here in these verses from 21 down to 25. So look at the passage again with me. And we're going to start with verse 22. What kind of a priest was Jesus? Number one, he says, he is one who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Notice what kind of a priest he was. I think we could say a couple of things about this. Number one, he was a priest, unlike the priests of the Old Testament, as the writer of Hebrews says, who had to offer sacrifice for their own sins before they could even go and offer sacrifice for the people. He says Jesus wasn't that kind of priest. He had no sin. If you looked at the passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 27, here's what the writer says. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heaven, who doesn't need daily like those high priests of old to offer up sacrifice for themselves. He is a perfect priest. No sin in his life, no fault, no shortcoming, perfect in every sense of the word. Secondly, he was one whose desire as a priest of God, his desire was totally unselfish. It was always to please the Father in every way, and he did that. And furthermore, it was to do the utmost good for those that he represented, for those that he was a mediator for. It was to do the utmost good for them. Do you remember a passage in Matthew 26, verses 51 to 54? They're in the garden. Peter pulls his sword and cuts off one of the servant's ears, one of the servants of the high priest, cuts off his ear. Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could have called 12 legions of angels to intercede here for me? But it's not the Father's will. 
The Father's will is that all things be done as he has planned before the foundation of the world. And that's for me to be a priest. That's for me to offer sacrifice for your sins. Put your sword away. I could have called angels here, but I did not choose to do that. Totally unselfish, undefiled. He was one who did not revile in return when he was reviled. He suffered. He uttered no threats. This is a different kind of priest altogether, wouldn't you say? A priest without sin, a priest that's unselfish, a priest that's looking out for the Father's will, not for his, no matter what he has to suffer, no matter how much he has to bear, he's willing to do it. And then thirdly, we learn not only from Hebrews chapter 7, but also in Psalm 110, he's a priest of a different order. He's not of the order of Levi. He's of the order of Melchizedek. Why Melchizedek? Because the scriptures tell us that Melchizedek is a representative of one who has no end. He had no beginning that's recorded. He had no end. He appears and he leaves the scene. And that's all we know about Melchizedek. When he meets with Abraham on the field after battle. Jesus is a priest, the writer of Hebrews says, like Melchizedek. He has everlasting life. He had no beginning. He has no end. He is able to represent us, not like the priests who died and had to be replaced, the writer of Hebrews says. He is a priest that lives forever and represents us forever. Not only before his death, during his death, after his death. This is a different kind of priest altogether with a totally different character. Sinless, flawless, one that was unselfish, one that did not seek revenge, revile in return, one who was alive forevermore and could represent us before the Father forever and ever and ever. That's the character of this priest, according to Peter. Now, there's a second thing that we want to look at, and the second point is simply this. What did he achieve in his priestly role on the cross? What did he achieve? And there's two things that the writer of, of uh, first, first Peter says. Peter writes, number one, and this is in verse 24, Number one, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He himself bore our sins on the cross. He carried them. The Father put every sin against him. He paid the price for every sin of everyone that he would bring to himself. So that when it's all finished, every one of us can say, we're forgiven. Not like in the Catholic Church. If you're familiar with Catholic theology and you're familiar with church history, the Catholics look at our sins being covered only to the time in which we come to know Christ. But after that, 
You have to deal with your sin. You need to see a priest. You need to go to confession. You need to confess on your deathbed. They need to give you last rites. But Jesus is a priest who bore all sins, past, present, and future, of everyone that he would bring to himself. And not one of them was left out. So that you and I can say, because of what Peter is saying, he bore our sins in his own body, on the cross, on that tree, so that we might be set free. No sin can ever be held against us after we come to Christ. Not one that we did yesterday, not one that we did today, not one that we will do tomorrow if we truly are His. What a marvelous thing. What a marvelous thing that He has done for us. He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. In the process, He did not become sinful Himself in bearing our sins. He simply carried them. He simply bore the consequences of our sin. And we will never understand that. Josh Brown, my grandson, who's back in Colorado with us right now, until December when he graduates, at least, till then, um, he preached last Sunday, Sunday before last, in Colorado, and Ann and I got to hear him before we departed for Florida. And one of the things he did in that sermon was to give us He gave us a doctor's kind of rendition, a doctor's um, analogy of what Christ went through on the cross. And it was extreme. I think everybody in the congregation, as they listened to Josh give all those details, they were kind of thinking, I hope this ends soon. It's horrible what someone went through dying on a cross. But far more horrible than that was the fact that he bore the wrath of God the Father in his own person for our sins. Everyone that he would bring to himself. Not just me, not just you, but everyone. Every sin of everyone that he would bring. He bore the wrath of God for that sin in his own body on the tree. And I would say to you again, as I said to you once preaching on a Sunday morning here or maybe a year ago or so, the Father didn't turn His back on Him. Psalm 22 makes that so plain. The Father did not look away. The Father was never more pleased with the Lord Jesus Christ than that moment in time when He bore God's wrath for us. Could have called 12 legions of angels, but he did not. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, thy will be done, not mine. I want to please you. I want to be a sacrifice so that we can bring hundreds and thousands of men and women to the kingdom and make them part of the kingdom because of the work on the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross willingly, desiring to please the Father, and He satisfied the Father's righteous demands once and for all, 
and he removed sin and the penalty of sin and condemnation for sin from us once and for all. Marvelous, wonderful. Now that's where a lot of people, as I said at the beginning of this, seem to stop when they think about what did Christ accomplish for me? He forgave my sins. But Peter goes on to say there's something more here that he achieved. Look at this verse again. Verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live to righteousness for... Here comes the second thing he achieved. For by his wounds, by his wounds on the cross, you were what? Healed. Healed. Listen to some verses where this word appears. And I want to read to you several of them. Matthew 13, 15. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I should heal them. Now, he's not talking about, did you notice this? He's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about spiritual healing. He's talking about the fact that everyone who comes into this world Everyone comes into this world lost and under sin and under condemnation. And everyone comes in to this world needing healing, spiritually. They're dead in trespasses and sin, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. They need healing. John 12, 40, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart And the heart's another word that the writers of the New Testament use particularly for the inner man. That part of us which is immaterial. That part of us which is spiritual. And he says, lest they uh, perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. And I heal them. Every man who comes into this world needs not only a new body someday, a glorified body, if they are Christ's possession, if they are Christ's child, but they need to be healed spiritually. They need new life. They need a new heart. They need a heart transplant. But it's a spiritual one. And it's on the cross that Christ not only forgave, he bore our sins and forgave our sins, but he also, in his death, And in his resurrection, we died with him, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 1 to 7. And we were raised to newness of life in Christ. We not only received forgiveness of sins, we became a new creature in Christ. We were healed spiritually. Raised up in the inner man. Listen to this verse in Hebrews 12, 13. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Spiritual healing is in view in that passage. Isaiah 53.5, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we're healed. We're healed. We're healed. 
not only do we have, because of Christ's work as a high priest on the cross, not only do we have forgiveness of sins, we have life. We were raised to newness of life with him on the cross of Calvary. This is a marvelous thing. I'm not so sure why so many Christians don't automatically think of that when they think of, why did Christ die for me? In fact, I would put it to you this way. Before, it seems to me, logically, theologically thinking through this, life has to come before faith. Does it not? If you're dead and someone throws you a lifeline, can you grab it? What happened to Lazarus when he was in the tomb and had been in there for four days? And Jesus simply says the words, Lazarus, come forth. Could Lazarus hear? No. Not until Jesus gave life and made his ears alive again and made his hearing alive so that he could hear the command, Lazarus, come forth. Someone said, it's good that he really mentioned the name Lazarus because there may have been a whole graveyard of people coming forth. Lazarus came forth because Jesus gave him human life again. And he heard the command and he came forth. What we're seeing here is that two major things Christ achieved on the cross. He bore our sins so that we will never pay that price. But he also, he also, in order that we could believe in him and follow him, he raised us from the dead in the inner man. He gave us new birth. He gave us life. The next time somebody asks you, what did you receive because of the death of Christ? Think and say, I receive forgiveness. But equally important, I became a new creature in Christ. I became a believer. I became a new being. I received spiritual life and was raised from the dead, all because of the priestly work of Jesus Christ, all because of what he did. This is a, do you remember 1 Corinthians 2.14? The natural man does not understand the things of, of the Spirit of God. He cannot because they're spiritually appraised. First of all, you have to be born of the Spirit. First of all, you have to be healed spiritually. Even before you can understand the gospel. This is what the Word of God says, and it makes it, it, makes it very, very plain. We were dead, and while we were dead, He raised us up to newness of life. Now, there's a third point here, too. Two things that he achieved with his priestly work on the cross. This one who was different than all priests that went before him. But he also did these two things with a purpose in view. If I ask you tonight, what was the purpose for which Christ saved you? Saved you? 
Again, you might say, well, he knew that I needed forgiveness and I was lost and and I was undone and I was condemned. And, And so that was a purpose he wanted to forgive. That's true. But there's something more that he wanted. There's something more that he desires for every one of us who know his son. Everyone that his son has called to himself, and it is this. He wants us, according to Romans chapter 8, 28 to 30, he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He's predestined that we become like Christ. He didn't just save us and forgive us. Yes, that was important. That was absolutely necessary. But he saved us to be miniature Christ's. To think like Christ thought, to live like Christ lived, to act like he did, to plan like he did, to please the Father like he did. That's what he wanted. Notice what he, how, he, how he describes it here in verse 24. He himself bore our sins, and then the end of the verse, and by his wounds you were healed, you were healed spiritually by his death on the cross. And he bore your sins. And then comes the purpose right in the middle of the two achievements. Notice it again. That purpose, we might die to sins and live to righteousness. Die to sins and live to righteousness. You see, he's had a plan. It wasn't just to forgive as important as that is. Otherwise, we would have to stand and bear the consequences of our own sin. But he had another part of this plan. He redeemed us so that he might restore us, so that we might walk with him and we might walk like his son in the power of the Spirit of God. Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ as you live each day in Christ? Are you thinking more like him? Are you acting more like him? Are you overcoming the deeds of your flesh more or less? Sometimes it's easy, don't you think, to just excuse ourselves and say, well, you know, we're forgiven. Well, we are. Thank God that we are. Every sin, even the ones that we will commit. And yet there's 1 John 1, 9, isn't there? But he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we do what? Continue confessing our sins. My son once called me from work and he had been attending my middle son, not Dave, that's here, but my middle son, Mike, he said, Dad, I was just in a Bible study at lunch today and this man was teaching us that we no longer have to confess sins because all of our sins have been forgiven and it's actually... It's actually not believing what God has said if we continue to confess our sins. He said, what do you think? I could hardly control myself. I said, I think that's blasphemy. The scriptures say we must continue to confess our sins and that true believers will. Because the spirit of God lives within us and he points them out to us, doesn't he? And the word of God points them out. Yes, they're forgiven, but we keep on confessing. 
because we want to have a relationship with him. We want to walk with him in his power. And Psalm 66, 18 says in the Old Testament, if I regard iniquity in my heart, he doesn't hear me. I've got to keep confessing because I'm his child. I don't want to let anything get in between us. Myself and my Lord, I want to take advantage and let him keep cleansing me from all unrighteousness. I want to ask you again, though, are you becoming more like his son? He's predestined that his children become more like Christ. He died on the cross to not only forgive our sins, but to give us life, new life, spiritual life, to heal us so that now we can put to death the deeds of our flesh. We can't say, as Flip Wilson, that'll tell you my age, as Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. We can't say that. We can, but it's no good. We have life. We can overcome. We've been redeemed with a purpose to die to sin and live to righteousness, to become like Christ. That's the purpose for which he has redeemed us. The overriding purpose. And Peter says that right here. That last verse, I wish we had a little bit more time to go into that, but uh, we don't. And um, I'll just read it for you. For you were continually, this is what we were before, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Think of Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. You know that? It's familiar? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He says in, that, in those first three verses, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. For the sake of his name. The one who saved us for the sake of his name, the name of Jesus Christ, he leads me in righteous paths. He leads me away from sin. He leads me in paths of righteousness. That's what shepherds do. We've returned to our shepherd and the guardian, the one who protects us, the one who keeps us the one who is there with us day by day, moment by moment, the one who will always forgive, the one who will always come and give aid, the one who will answer the prayer, strengthen me in the inner man by the Spirit with power so that Christ might dwell in my heart through faith. My heart through faith. He does that. He guards us. He keeps us. And he will keep us forever. This priest, different than all other priests, has given himself for us. He's borne our sin. He's given us healing. He's given us life. And he's given us purpose. Purpose. Not just 
not just to go on living life as we did, but living life anew. Living life like Christ lived it. Being pleasing to him. We have everything we need in the cross. Everything we need in the priestly work of Jesus Christ. Now let me, let me just say these things to you in closing. Just a couple of points. Have you experienced what he achieved on the cross? Do you know you're forgiven? Do you know that all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been done away with? Do you know that you never need to go see a priest in this life to have someone offer sacrifice for you? It's been done. Once and for all, all of your sins are forgiven. No more priests, no more mediators, no more sacrifices. And then are you experiencing the the other half of what he achieved? Are you experiencing the life, the joy, the power? Are you able to say, as Paul said, I am a new creature in Christ. Behold, all things are new. I'm not the same person I used to be. There's one expression, and if you said it, I hope you haven't, but if you have, I don't like it. It's one of my least favorite expressions that I ever hear Christians utter. And this is it. I'm the same old sinner just forgiven. Do you hear those words? I'm the same old sinner just forgiven. No, you missed out on the second thing that he achieved on the cross. You're not the same old sinner just forgiven. You're a new creature. You've been healed. You've been raised from the dead. You're a new creature. You're not perfect. You never will be perfect in this life. But you're not the same old sinner just forgiven. I hope you see what I see in that phrase. You're a new creature in Christ. Behold, all things are new. You can now walk. You can receive the power of the Spirit. You can overcome. You can put to death the deeds of your flesh, your body, by the Spirit, and be pleasing to Him. And you can grow exponentially day by day and become more like your Savior. Are you doing that? Are you advancing in the Christian life? Are you seeing victory where you didn't see victory before? Are you confessing sin and experiencing that? There's one other thing I want you to understand about this this passage too that I think is um, very important. And I want to quote a little bit from this book. I know that uh, Pastor Jerry's class used this. Any other classes go through the book Conversion here at church? But here's the point. It also, understanding what Peter is saying here, also, also affects the way you witness. Not only the way you think about yourself, 
but the way you witness and take the gospel to others. I want to read just a section here beginning on page 92 in which the author, Michael Lawrence, in this little book on conversion, part of the Nine Marks series, here's what he says. He says, the gospel isn't merely that God loves you or Jesus will give you purpose. It doesn't promise a happy marriage or success at work or successful children. It may help, but it offers no guarantees. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again as a substitute for sinners, appeasing God's just wrath and reconciling us to himself. When we advertise the felt need benefits of the gospel and neglect the core content of the gospel, we're not doing biblical evangelism, but something less. Who doesn't want peace, contentment, a better family life? It doesn't take the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to say yes to that offer. George Barna, surveying church-going baby boomers, observed what felt needs evangelism offered these consumers. And here's what he said. For a one-time admission of imperfection and weakness, they received in return permanent peace with God. The result was that millions of boomers who said the prayer asked for forgiveness and went on with their life with virtually nothing changed. They saw it as a deal in which they could exploit God and get what they wanted without giving up anything of consequence. A right doctrine of conversion teaches us to tell people the good news plainly. We must communicate honestly, which we do by telling people to count the cost. Paul refers to the cost in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians. Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And Paul learned this from Jesus. Whoever would save his life, Jesus said, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. When we don't ask people to count the cost, but instead market felt need benefits, we set them up for failure when suffering and trials come. What happens to their faith in Christ when mothers die, kids rebel, or jobs are lost. Real conversions, conversions characterized by repentance and given by God, bear up under suffering. They treasure Christ and not merely his felt benefits. Yet our marketing mindsets are slow to include the cost of discipleship when evangelizing. We are afraid to tell the whole truth about following Jesus. So we sell the lesser glories. The truth is, Jesus does give his followers a fulfilled life. But it's the fulfillment of knowing that your life is no longer your own and the fulfillment of living for God's glory. I think he's right on. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just to bear sins. It wasn't just to forgive us of the sins that we needed to be forgiven of. It was to infuse life where there was nothing but deadness. To give us new birth. 
to give spiritual healing so that now in this life as a believer, we can keep our eyes on him and walk with him and be pleasing to him and become like him. That's what Peter is saying here. People who are lost return to the shepherd and the guardian of their soul. I pray that all of us will take those truths and embrace them and live them out by the power of the indwelling spirit in us. Let's pray. Our Father, what a marvelous text this is. What a marvelous reminder. And this text begins by saying that Christ, even when he suffered, was an example for us that we might suffer like him. That's not easy. In fact, that's impossible humanly. But by the power of the Spirit of God that indwells us and has given us life, Father, we can walk differently. We can overcome. We can walk in newness of life. And we can even learn to suffer as he suffered with joy and peace. We can, we can know that we're pleasing you. Father, we thank you from the very depths of our heart tonight for your son for his work on the cross, for his bearing our sin, for his bringing healing to us as he raised, as he was raised from the dead and we were raised with him so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Thank you for that. May we proclaim that. May we include that in our gospel opportunities as we share. May we challenge people to repent of sin and turn to Christ and look for newness of life. We thank you, Father, for the word of God. Write it upon our hearts tonight. Make us more like your son each day. Help us not to excuse our sin, but to confess it and know that you are faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you tonight. Thank you for being with these dear people and this church that loves you and loves your word. We commit all here to you and pray that you would continue to do a great work here at Riverbend Community Church. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.